Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. This week was an interesting week. It, uh, it presented itself to me a little bit differently than a lot, of, uh, a lot of weeks do. Typically, I try to schedule Monday and Tuesday to spend time uh, studying the scriptures and preparing the, the lesson or sermon that I'm going to preach on Sunday morning. And this week, at the end of Tuesday, I didn't have one word prepared, hadn't spent one minute um, looking at the, at the scriptures and studying, because the other part of my work that is also important is all of you. And my, my life on Monday and Tuesday just got filled up with, with people who um, I got to spend some time with. Uh, and it was good. It was by the end of the day, Tuesday, I was loving life. I was loving my job and feeling a little bit of pressure, honestly, about Sunday. Because uh, my son had qualified for the state track and field championship, so I knew I was going to be gone Friday and Saturday and get back at you know an unbelievable hour on Saturday night. And so that cuts the week down to Wednesday and Thursday. And there were other things planned and but, uh, but Bill helped me, and, and Pastor Aaron helped me, and, and they, they handled all of the pastoral people stuff, and I locked myself away, and uh, I worked hard and studied, and, and over the course of uh, those two days, I spent uh, about 20 hours preparing a message for today. Then uh, this morning, I walked into the office, and I opened my computer and was greeted by what I now know is uh, referred to as the red screen of death. (laughs) And that's what happens when bad things happen to good computers. And um, typically, I won't give you the, bore you with all the details, but typically I'll have saved all of that on some other, you know, backup device so that I'm not caught in the spot that I'm in this morning. (laughs) Um, That's all you're going to get up there this morning, okay? Maybe a little bit of scripture. Um, And uh, after I... I went and sat down in my office. I thought, okay, uh, I'm going to preach something this morning. I, I turned back to the very same passage that I had worked on all week. And, and, and I, wrote, I wrote this, just a handful of notes. And, um, and then Kelsey came and she said, hey, I found your sermon. And now I had a dilemma <laughs> because I had that that I did all that work on. And I had this that just seems to be just kind of pounding in my heart this morning. So I did all the prep work. I'm just not going to preach the sermon that I prepared, okay? And um, so I'll ask you to just venture with me through the scriptures this morning. Um, we're working our way through the New Testament book titled 1 Corinthians. It's one of two letters that we have from Paul to the church at Corinth. It's kind of an interesting title, though, because in the letter titled 1 Corinthians, Paul says, well, in my first letter, (laughs) the one that came before this, but that we lost and don't have, um, he he makes reference to some of those things. So now it's really the second letter, but it's titled 1 Corinthians. And we're going to start reading from chapter 4. And just as a way of showing respect for God, Would you please stand with me and hear the word of the Lord? It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading with verse 14. I always want to, uh, we'll have it up here as often as we can, but I always want to encourage you to bring a Bible, whether that's your electronic device or you have the the printed copy. I want to encourage you to bring one and to take notes. 
not necessarily what Cliff says, but the theme, those aha moments that happen in your head and your heart, those are gifts from God that can guide you for a lifetime. And so whether you uh, scratch those in the margin of your printed Bible or whether you take notes in new version, I just want to encourage you to, to, to bring your copies of the Scriptures with you. They'll become this thing that guides you um, for the rest of your life. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, Lord, would you illumine our hearts this morning? I'm writing this. This is Paul writing to his friends. He had pastored that church for, for 18 months. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Listen to that. Uh, My way of life, which agrees with what I teach. Way of life agrees with what I teach. Hang on to that. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? It's actually reported, chapter 5, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine? to judge those outside the church. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. But expel the wicked person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. 
and nobody's favorite passage. You may be seated. My dad was a man of very few words. It's a slight exaggeration when I say he spoke about six words a day. All of them were good. You should tune in and listen whenever he spoke. Every once in a while, my dad would look at me and say, son, we need to talk. And that just ran, you know, chills down my spine. Seems like it always went like this. He was getting up and uh, ready to go to work. As he headed out the door, he'd look at me and he'd say, son, we need to talk. Um, we'll, we'll do that this evening when I get home. Oh, sweat all day long, wondering what I had done or what he had found out that I had done. And I would worry because my dad, um, my dad was that guy. Put it this way. Um, my mom... My mom spanked me when I needed it. Well, she spanked me most of the time when I needed it. And um, I got, still got by with $10 million that she still owes me. You know what I'm talking about? But my dad, my dad spanked me one time in my life. And that was enough. And after that, I did what dad said. You know, he just looked at me and was like, okay, okay, okay. And I'm good, good to go. So when, when I became a teenager and dad said, uh, hey, son, we need to talk. And he walked out the door. There was just this, oh, this fretting and worrying in my heart all day long as I waited to talk with Dad when he got home. My dad died nine years ago. And I got to tell you, today, I would give absolutely anything for him to say, hey, we need to talk, and for me to get the chance to hear what it is that he had to say. Partly because I miss him, partly because I'm older now, and, uh, and I've learned as I look back on those times that my dad said, we need to talk, that he was right. We needed to. It wasn't him taking anything out on me. It wasn't him punishing me. It was, we needed to talk because my dad loved me and he had seen some error in my ways and my dad wasn't mad and he wasn't going to take something out on me. He was going to correct my steps so that I didn't end up doing something that destroyed myself. That's how this passage starts, right? It's the Apostle Paul saying, I'm your father. You know, you don't have many fathers in the faith. I'm your father. And um, we need to talk. He, all the previous chapters, he'd been building them up in the faith and, and congratulating them where he could and, and complimenting them on their faithfulness and saying, remember, God's, God's big message to you, the one that comes with all of the apostolic authority, is grace and peace to you. God doesn't treat people as their sins deserve. He, he, he wants to reach out there into, into that, that promised peace of heaven in the eternal future. Grab some of that, bring it back, massage it into your life. Grace and peace to you. Here he says, we have to talk. And, and as I, I read the chapter, I, I think there were four things really that Paul wanted to talk to the church about. And so I think it's a message, certainly it's a message to a particular church in ancient history. By the miracle of inspiration, this becomes God's word to all of the churches here today. So this is a letter to the Corinthians and and to the LC Valley folks, okay? Here's a message from the Lord to his church. First thing that he wanted to talk about was sexual immorality in the church. The church is, uh, by God's design, supposed to be an example to the world around us, an example of several things, an example of health, an example of wisdom, an example of holiness, 
The world's supposed to be able to tell some things when they look at us. They're supposed to be able to tell some things about how life should go and how, how the blessings of God flow into your lives when you adopt the God plan for living. We've talked about it before from in, in this setting about how when, when you adopt God's plan for managing what he puts in your hands, finances, he tends to bless that. We, we've talked, nod your heads. You've, you remember this, right? Yeah, well, guess what? It's true about the uh, sexuality part of your life, too. That when you walk according to God's plan, there are blessings and benefits and protections that come your way. And God has all along intended that the church would be this example to the world of what happens when you walk out God's plan and he gets involved and brings rich blessings into your life. Know this. The world is watching us. It is. And despite what they say, the world is not secretly hoping that the Jesus people will join them in their sexual sin. They're not. They, they, they may uh, advertise a little bit. They may jeer a little bit. But the world is watching, and they don't want us to join them in their sexual sin. What they're really looking for is a group of people who will give them hope that human beings can be transformed to the place that they are not slaves to sexuality. The world is looking for hope that there actually is a healthy way to live in relationship to people all around us. They're watching us, church, in the hope that not we'll screw up, in the hope that we'll get it right by the power of the Holy Spirit and give them reason to believe and give them hope that their lives might be transformed as well. Know this. This is the strangest thing. People who do not share our faith are offended by our sin. Do you hear that? People who do not share our faith, particularly our values when it comes to sexuality, they are offended by our sexual sin. Instead of saying, yeah, we do that too. No problem. They look at us with a, how dare you? You know why? It's because we said that we believed one thing and we did another. In the words of Paul, Our way of life didn't match up with our teaching. The world itself is offended by the sexual sins of the church. They don't applaud it. And the truth is that the church of Jesus Christ owes the world an example of hope when it comes to sexuality. Not a lot of amens this morning, but you're tracking with me, right? Let me talk about this then, how it is that we are going to, uh, if we're going to live biblically, that we offer an example of the God way of approaching human sexuality. Here it is. It's unpopular. Uh, the, 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 the things that, that I'm going to talk about have been branded by some as hate speech. I stand before you as a minister of the gospel this morning. I have one foundation and one only. is Jesus Christ. He's revealed to us, we believe, in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. And they become the authority for Christian beliefs and Christian practice. It's standing on that foundation that I want to talk to you this morning about what um, the God way of sexuality looks like. Sexuality is defined in the scriptures as acts of love and intimacy between a husband and a wife. Acts of sexual love and intimacy between a husband and a wife. The husband and the wife part are not negotiable. It's not between boyfriend and girlfriend. 
prior to marriage. It's not between husband and girlfriend on the side, wife and boyfriend on the side, and it's not between boyfriend and boyfriend or girlfriend and girlfriend. The scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, in concert together, are in very close agreement that sexuality, as defined by God, is to be reserved for the relationship between a husband and a wife. It waits for marriage, and it is confined to marriage. But here's what we have learned, is that when we walk the God way, when it comes to human sexuality, there is great freedom between husband and wife. There's great reward and enjoyment. It builds the strength of a marriage, and sometimes it builds a family. That's a beautiful thing. But beyond that, the Scriptures promise that when people walk in obedience to God, He personally gets involved and lavishes blessings upon His children. So I'll just say this. Christians should have the very best sex life. Shouldn't. Because we walk the Jesus way. We walk the God way in this thing. And we find the freedom without the fears, without the worries, without the destruction. And on top of that, we get the blessing of God Himself. This is why Paul waded into this thing and said, you have got to be kidding me. Even the pagans don't do what you guys are doing. man sleeps with his father's wife. I read some, some commentaries about this, and people wanted to discuss whether this was his mom or his stepmom. You know what the answer is? It doesn't matter! Can we just, I mean, from time to time, I'll try to coax an amen out of you. Today, can we, can I just get a yuck? Thank you. Yeah. And this was happening among the people of God. The, The particularities of the sin didn't matter. It was that it was a deviation from the plan that God had set for his people to protect them, to bless them, to ensure their health, and and to make them a bright and shining light to the world around them so that people would go, it it is possible to say no to things that are going to destroy me? It is possible to say no to things that frighten me? It is possible to say no to things that degrade me? And I can still be loved and I can still be protected? I can still be blessed by God, yes. Now listen to me closely. This is very important. We're going to get to it later, but I just have to say it right here, right now. This is the call to the people of God. And the people of God are later on in this passage told, do not judge those outside the faith. I should eliminate some Facebook posts. And and I think that if we obeyed that from the heart, our our Facebook and email tirades might might become compassionate prayers for people who are hurting and broken. That sounds like the work of the people of God in this world. I still like amen better than yuck. Thank you. Yeah. Paul talked about sexual immorality in the church. He said no. Secondly, he talked about spiritual pride in the church. And he said no. Shouldn't be. 
Instead of sorrow over sin in the church in Corinth, there was pride. I can't believe the things you do. It's so sinful that the world around you goes, you've got to be kidding me, and you're proud about it? I think addressing the issue of spiritual pride, I wish Paul had written footnotes or maybe another chapter, and he didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about it, but I'm going to because I think it is of of, of crucial importance. I think that um, because we're Americans and we think that that if you're going to be really American, you do a little bit of this, you know what I'm talking about? If if somebody said it to me once, they've said it to, I've I've heard it 10,000 times, um, well, it's okay to have a little bit of pride, except every, every occurrence of that word in the scriptures, it's labeled as a sin. So there's got to be something that can swell up in our hearts that is wholesome and good, but that thing is not called pride. Pride is the word that was used to describe the one who first rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven for it. He said, I can be in charge too. I can do the God thing. I can be God over me, maybe over some other people too. That's the thing that God said, no, deal breaker, you're out of here. And when when given the opportunity, some others, some other angelic beings said, well, I kind of like the idea of me being the God too. Next. Spiritual pride. Pride does not belong in the church. Let me tell you what it looks like. Because Americans baptize pride. We, we, we coach it. And we coax it along in ourselves and in others. We congratulate it so much that I think we've become blind to it. Let me tell you what pride sometimes looks like in the church. It looks like a few of these things. It looks like somebody who says, um, we're just open-minded. I know what the scriptures say, but... I mean, this is the 21st century, and, and, and we're more open-minded than that. It's, it's this assumption that I know better than, you know, say, the apostles and those who were clearly filled with the Holy Spirit, who suffered for this faith, died defending the very things that they said about Jesus. But, you know, me, 45, I'm pretty sharp. It looks like this, these kind of statements. I answer to God only. It's my business, not yours. It sounds like, well, what happens between two consenting adults is their business. It looks like, don't tell me how to live my life. It looks like, I've prayed, and God doesn't have a problem with it. I know what's written in the scriptures, but I talked to God, and he said we have a special deal. It looks like, I know it's wrong, but... It looks like a former next-door neighbor that I had. He was a friend. He was a mentor to me, a pastor. He, uh, he left his wife and his family, and he got involved in a, in a relationship with, uh, with a woman he was not married to. And... Uh, I had read 1 Corinthians, and uh, I had the Holy Spirit poking me in the heart and telling me that I needed to go see my friend. And so I laid awake for a few nights, and I, I, I told the Lord about all the other people who knew him better who should do this. 
And I, 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 gave him, I gave God their phone numbers. He could get a hold of them easily. And, and uh, God said, no. I want you to talk to him. So It's one of the hardest things that I've ever done. I went to a guy and I told him that what he was doing was wrong. And he needed to stop and he needed to be reconciled to his wife and kids. And he listened for a little bit and he gave me all the excuses and he said some of the things that I just read to you. And, um, and so I, I looked him in the eye and I said, this isn't your friend Cliff talking anymore. This is your, your pastor. And I'm going to tell you to stop doing what you're doing because it's sinful. And be reconciled to your wife and be faithful to her. He stood up from behind his desk and he walked around and he patted me on the shoulder and he said, well, thanks for coming today. But don't think I'm going to put up with some long string of Christians coming in here and telling me how to live my life. You can see yourself to the door. I, uh, I was part of a... Uh, uh, a ministry group that uh, outside of the Church of the Nazarene, and I had to, I had to take his credentials and uh, do all the things that the Scripture talked about. And it was a, pretty much my worst day ever as a pastor. But the sp- spiritual pride that said. Uh, I won't be accountable, and I don't have to live like the scriptures say. It meant that somebody had to say, "There's the door." Hmm. I figure if you enjoy this kind of work, you uh, probably shouldn't do it. Paul said no to sexual immorality in the church. He said no to spiritual pride in the church. But he said yes to authenticity in the church. Yes to authenticity. Authenticity is the word of the day today, folks. Uh, It's the number one virtue in all of American culture. You talk to young adults in particular, and authenticity is the number one value among the millennial generation. The chief charge of the unbelieving world against the church of Jesus Christ is that we are phonies, that we're not authentic. In other words, hypocrites. That we say we are one thing, but we live however we darn well please. That we say that we are the followers of Jesus, but we don't walk in his footsteps. We take significant side trips. You want to know the difference um, between, uh, let me just say this. Paul said yes to authenticity in the church. He said no to hypocrites in the church. He actually said um, the folks who are intentionally, continually hypocrites, show them the door. At, At one point, Paul says, look, live like us or don't live with us. So let's talk about that for a minute. Does that mean that we should constantly be watching each other like hawks and one little sin? Ah, you're out. Should we, should we put a section in the order of service on Sunday mornings so that you can give the names of all the people you've seen sin this week and we can out the door with them? 
No, of course not. Well, what in the world is, is he talking about? Listen, it's very important that we understand that there is a difference between strugglers and hypocrites. You know, the world says, points at the church all the time and says, hypocrites, church is full of hypocrites. I'm never going to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. The church is not full of hypocrites. The church probably has some, but so does the Kiwanis Club and Little League. Little League hypocrites. They're out there. Church has some hypocrites, but I get to know a lot of church people. You know who I run into? Not very many hypocrites. I run into a bunch of strugglers, a bunch of people who say, I do believe, but I'm, I'm weak. I find a bunch of people who say, I do believe, and I want to live differently than I do, but there seems to be some change in my life. I run into people who have, have hearts that genuinely want to be like Jesus. They love him, and they want to reflect him to the world around him, and they are very aware of how poorly they reflect Jesus to the world. I know people who text me and say, will you pray for me? I'm being tempted right now. That's not a hypocrite. That's a struggler. A hypocrite is a person who intentionally paints one picture and then intentionally deceives people by doing the other thing. A hypocrite is somebody who paints the picture of something they never really intend to be. A struggler is a person who says, I want to be like Jesus but I fail. Will you pray for me and help me? Here's what I think a congregation is, a group of people who say, I need some help. And I think you might help me, whether it's the pastor who preaches a message or somebody who teaches some some biblical truth or or somebody who just sits next to him and says, you know what? You're a screw-up and you are still my friend. You know what? You failed for the 10,000th. You have confessed this to me 10,000 times. Get up, let's go, and, and they walk with them. I think that the churches are the biggest collection of people who want to be different and are struggling to become like Jesus. And I think that the church is full of basically two different kinds of strugglers. The beginning strugglers who have high hopes but not much experience in being um, like Jesus, and so they mess up a lot. The, the, the old habit's still very fresh in their memory, and they just keep running back into that. Ugh, uh, uh, I hate it when I do. But the church is also supposed to be full of a bunch of people who struggle and win. It's supposed to be a bunch of advanced strugglers, you know what I mean? The people who are still tempted, the people who still remember and kind of like some sinful things, but have decided and have to, to invite God's Holy Spirit into their lives, and they found that when they do so, the Spirit of God can grow strong within you so that it's possible to say yes to God and no to temptation. It's possible to say yes to righteousness and no to sin. And the church, God's design, was to put some advanced strugglers who still struggle with some beginning struggle strugglers who are still struggling and put them together so that the advanced strugglers can get an arm around the beginning strugglers and say, walk with me because I've found a way around some of the temptation. I've found a way through some of the temptation and you can come with me and we can do this. God's design was for there to be some advanced strugglers and some, some beginning strugglers so that the beginning strugglers could watch sometimes from a distance and say, I want to be like that lady. I'm, I, I'm going to start going to the things that lady goes to. I'm, I'm going to start talking to that lady once in a while because she got something going on that I need in my life. The design of God was for the church to be full of strugglers. 
The design of God was for us to uh, make sure that the church is not full of hypocrites. As a matter of fact, the church is supposed to be empty of hypocrites. People who say one thing that they never intend to be and intentionally deceive. So here's the thing. Nobody likes to hear about church discipline. It's the fourth thing. Paul said discipline in the church. Nobody likes to hear about it. But can we all just agree today that it's not an unreasonable thing? That if there are people among us who are intentionally deceiving us, have no intention of following Jesus, that we say to them, we don't do that here. But if you want to come and struggle with us, you'll be my brother. You'll be my sister. You'll be my friend. I don't think we have to hang our heads about saying to people who have no intention whatsoever of being followers of Jesus, but say that they do. Could you just either get authentic or find some other group to deceive? There's nothing in the world wrong with doing that, as long as you don't like it. As long as you don't find it fun to kick people out, as long as you don't get a sense of, I'm better than you. As long as it breaks your heart to say, no, we're not going to do the hypocrisy thing here. And I think that we can, with the guidance of God's Holy Spirit, walk there carefully, carefully. I think it's very important that, the, uh, that we understand that the scriptures, um, in this passage, Paul said um, a couple of things. When it comes down to this business of recognizing willful, continual, ongoing sin, you know, people that we you know, call our church family, he said, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase him here, but don't, don't kick the strugglers when they're down. Um, by the way, don't kick um, hypocrites either. That's not, that's not okay. Gently show them the door. Okay. I think we should remember the teachings of Jesus if we ever have to walk this direction where he said, um, you, you got a problem with that sawdust in that feller's eye? Yeah. Get the log jam out of yours for you. Deal with that. You should probably remember that. And then he said words that we wish Paul had never said. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? You know, the church has been really hard on sinners. You know, we don't know why a lot of people don't want to come to the church. We already told them that they're screw-ups, that we disapprove of them. They never said that they believed what we believe. They never said they were trying to live like we live. And we said, but you should be damned for that. Humiliated publicly. This was an error on the people of God. It was an error on the part of the people of God. He said, what business is it of ours to judge those outside the faith? It's a rhetorical question with an implied answer. It's none of our business. He said, you want to engage with the world around you? Be salt and light. Offer something that makes them thirsty or helps them see. Punching people in the, in the nose doesn't help. Screaming and yelling at them doesn't help. Facebook tirades, they, they, they don't help. People become thirsty or help them see. Love does. Light does. What business is it of ours to judge the world around us? But then he said, uh, but aren't, aren't you to judge those inside? It's a rhetorical question that has an implied answer, and that implied answer is, uh, yeah, 
we're supposed to. How about each of us today just starts not by looking down the aisle for who we can judge. Why don't we start this way? By saying, Lord, I think I should be subject to judgment. I volunteer for it today. Invite your Holy Spirit to speak to me and show me my sin. Why don't we start with us? And invite the Holy Spirit into the equation. And if he, he touches anything in your life, um, know that uh, he never gets it wrong. He doesn't call anything that isn't sin, sin. Um, and if he, if, he, if he touches something in your life, something comes to your mind, um, don't justify it because he didn't get it wrong. Stone up to it. Oh, that, you don't like that. That's sin. Okay. Then you and God can do whatever that judgment seemed to imply should happen in your life. God help us if we if we have to walk the route of identifying hypocrites. So why don't we just start by making sure that I'm not one? You know it's the best way to get rid of hypocrites in the church? Quit being one. Right? Just make sure you aren't one. Know this. There will always be room for strugglers at First Naz. Because you know what First Naz is? Strugglers unanimous. Right? I mean, give me a stinking amen, people. Help me out. It's, right? I mean, th- we're strugglers unanimous. But listen, we, we, we need to be on, on the road. We need to be on the road from beginners, beginning strugglers to advanced strugglers to where we're able to say to one another, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, I'm winning in my struggle against temptation and sin. So let's ask God's Holy Spirit to do that for us today. Stand, please. Lord, I rambled all over the place today. I don't even know if that was a sermon. But I know I read from your word, and I know that your Spirit's been speaking to me about some things that uh, um, if if I'm not careful, those won't be struggles. Those will be hypocrisies in my life. So, Lord, I, uh, I confess that you are right. And the things that you have called sin in my spirit today, I will confess that you're right. Forgive me, cleanse me, give me power by your Holy Spirit to change. Lord, I, I have a bunch of friends here around me today. I'll bet you're speaking to them too. Some of them don't struggle at all with the things I struggle with. and They struggle with things I don't struggle with at all. Help me not to look down my nose. Lord, we would ask that you would, um, that you would help the church to do what we've been taught about showing mercy and compassion to those who struggle, but also to make sure that we are not hypocrites and uh, to not aid and abet them. I don't know how to do that in a way that looks nice or good, so I'm just going to count on you to. Guide us when, if that time comes in the future. But rather than worrying about that, instead I'm going to glory in the good news that you give your Holy Spirit to those who ask. And you make it possible for us to be victorious over things that once had bound us. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in His Holy Spirit. There's enough power to change human beings. Lord, give us victory over sin. 
Help us to become those advanced strugglers who can help our, uh, our beginning friends along the path. In your holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. I don't know, maybe I should preach the other sermon today, but that's the one that you got. And um, so I would just say this, and, um, let, and let me imply this uh, about all sermons that you ever hear from me. God gets credit for the good stuff and all the dumb statements, those were mine, okay? The things that you shake your head at and go, um, something in my heart tells me that isn't right, um, um, take that to the Scriptures, and you and the Lord work on that. If you want to bring it to me, you and, you and the Lord and the Scriptures, and I can work on it together. But whatever it is that the Lord spoke to your spirits this morning, take that very, very seriously, and walk in obedience to Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So may you know His peace this day and always. Amen. Thanks.